Welcome to Alive and Kicking, the 90s football podcast. The podcast that's more 90s than when Ocean Colour Scene caught that train. Whoa, yeah. Whoa, yeah. And it's summer and it's hot, people, I know. My name's Ash Rose, your host and your guide on this, the original 1990s football podcast. Back once again like a renegade master and back with the only person I want to chat 90s football with and someone else who's coming on in a minute. But Mr Ed Chambers of the Football Tavern, how are you doing, sir? I am very well, thank you, Ash. Uh, thank you for asking on this uh, on this bright sunny day. It was actually good to see you at the weekend. I think we should probably uh, in person that we actually, we actually met in person and we actually had a beer, um, yeah. which was a very very rare occurrence for um, well two dads with with kids basically. So uh, yeah, it was good to it's good to get out in the sunshine. Yeah, it's good to touch your face uh, in the hot. It was hot, wasn't it? We went to a, a pre-season friendly, didn't we? Which we is... did indeed. Yeah. I was thinking, actually, I should should have said the issue when we were texting earlier in the preamble, but I was thinking like pre-season friendlies in the 90s. I don't really, I didn't, I never went to them, so I was a bit young. Did you ever frequent pre-season friendlies in the 1990s? Uh, No, um, I didn't. I think we used to hear at pre-season, before Sky Sports News, I think pre-season friendlies were things you read about and heard about. I think, you know, Jürgen Klinsmann at Watford, which I think Theo Theo Delaney mentioned when he came on. And I think Rude Hullet... Um, I think Rude, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I think Rude Hood, it was somewhere like Gillingham or somewhere like that. Yeah. And um, Rude, so Rude Hood, it, uh, and Klinsman. You heard about the sort of mega stars, but no, pre-season friendlies were, as I've said before, were um, players getting drunk in Ireland and running yeah. around a little bit, and that was about it. I always um, remember when I was, I think it must have been post World Cup when I first started to really, really like in 1990, really started to get into football. Yeah. I, I just used to cut out everything and make scrapbooks. Kids of today won't even know yeah. what a scrapbook. Yeah, I used to have a scrapbook. Yeah, yeah exactly. It used to be used to cut out newspaper clippings, stick it in a book. I've, I've still got some QPR ones in my loft. But yeah. I remember cutting out some pictures. I think it was Arsenal v Sampdoria, and I couldn't right. understand why Arsenal were playing Sampdoria because it was a preseason friendly. Yeah. But at that time, I couldn't understand why were they yeah. playing each other. And it's yeah. I, I was. Why don't they play each other in the league? You yeah, know, I know. I mean, it was, was really that, hard. Yeah. Yeah, really hard for me yeah. to get my head around. Like, why are they playing yeah. now? Yeah, Why is it was... so hot? I think Arsenal were even wearing that famous banana skin kit as yeah, well. Yeah, I think I know the game you're on about. I, yeah. think, I think that was probably the Makita Cup. The Makita oh, Cup. Oh, the Makita uh, Cup, yeah. Right, and then... What was the Makita? Um, was that some sort of electrical um, appliance? Yeah, I was going to say, me and you are probably the worst two people to know this because we are not DIY orientated <laughs> at all. But I believe Makita is like power, it's like power tools. And like stuff Black and like Decker. Yeah. yeah, basically, which me and you are not nope. going to know. Not at all, um, you know, so so yeah, but um, so yeah, pre-season. We're not. We're only a couple of weeks away now from the actual championship starting, I which know, I just crazy. find incredible, really. And then I read the other day that the FA Cup final is going to be on the first. I think it's like the first or the fourth of June, something like that, which I think is the latest. Yeah. Well, other than the COVID, obviously, obviously during the pandemic was different because it was in August. Yeah. But um, you know, I think that's the latest it's ever. I can ever remember it being. So Definitely. yeah, that's yeah, my birthday. Yeah, it's, oh, that's true. Yeah, so it's uh, oh, Rangers. Yeah, yeah, right. I'll um, I'll do any, I'll bet any, all the money in your pocket versus all the money in my pocket that uh, QPR will not be in the FA Cup final. <laughs> you can, we've it's not our money is, first of all. Yeah, yeah. This is this is being recorded. Uh, so I am I am down on uh, I am down to say that uh, Mickey Beal is not taking QPR to an <laughs> FA Cup final. Yeah, that's true. Uh, talking of things, we sort of. The way we used to see things released in the 1990s. Obviously, we're in that period, which is one of my favourite parts of the season. New kits come out and we get all the social media guff now of mm-hmm. the behind. I think the QPR one is 
born in West London, made in Italy or something like that for the new, which is very nice, by the way, very like, much like the new home kit. But it's such a far cry from the 1990s when we used to find out about kits. And the only ways I really remember was flicking through shoot and match because there'd yeah. just be a random advertisement of, of the new kits, sometimes only even by some random sports company. It wasn't even a feature in the magazine. Yeah. Um, I remember once walk, I was on holiday and I walked past a sports shop and I saw the Liverpool Awaken, which was that yellow, that really ghastly yellow McDonald's looking kit that they had. Yes, yeah. yes, Towards I know the, the one you mean. With the famous yeah. ad that had the all the Scouts yeah. wigs. Yes. And, and yeah, that was in a yeah. shop window and that was the first time that I'd saw it. And I was like, what is this Liverpool kit? Where has it come from? And yeah. it kind of, isn't uh, as we always talk about, it, it was a kind of an innocent, more fun way. Some you wouldn't even know until the first day of the season, would you? No, absolutely. I think I think the other thing I remember was if you had a mate at school that went to games regularly, yes. they might bring in a program and it might have the kit, um, the kit on it. But funny, you should mention about kits and match and stuff because Greg Lansdowne, who I Mr. Panini. Yeah, has been on the show before, I believe. Oh, um, many times. Yeah, many times. Uh, he actually posted on Twitter this morning that this week in 1993, get kitted out for the new season, and it's Match Magazine. So I'll oh, I've seen this. it. Yeah, I'm looking at it now. Yeah, I've yeah. Seen it and um, you've got like some incredibly 90s looking children uh, wearing incredibly 90s kits. You've got uh, the uh, black and yellow Sheffield Wednesday one with Sanderson written on the front, Chelsea with Amiga, which was a great computer back in the day, kids, I can assure you. Uh, Liverpool with the Carlsberg, Southampton, Dimple X, I don't remember that at all. I don't know what that is, no, that uh, and, um, nonsense. Yeah, probably. And Spurs was Holston, and I know what that is because it was my favourite beer for a very, very long time. Um, but yeah, kit, kits in the 90s, that's how we found out about them, whereas now it's all the the drama and the razzmatazz of um, launches and all that sort of stuff, isn't it? Whereas back then it was a lot simpler. Really. Yeah, so. these kids, the first thing to notice is the haircuts are so 90s. Yeah, well. they're brilliant. Most of them got, going on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You've either got curtains or hair that basically covers your whole forehead and yeah. almost touches your eyes. I'd love to have that much hair right now. the Liverpool kid, I'll retweet this. The Liverpool kid has got some interesting choice of hairstyle. It kind of just is a one true, actually. It's, a, it's, almost like, it's almost like his mum can decide whether he was going to have the curtains or the sort of hair over the forehead. Yeah, or but even the number one the, all over. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to have to retweet this if people know what we're going yeah. on about. Yeah. But the, the, kid, the kid in the Lazio shirt looks yes. like my mum and dad went to Rome and all they brought me back was this Lazio shirt. He looks really miserable, I doesn't know. he? The shirts are love... so massive as well, though. Yeah. So I'd love to have that shirt. I I'd genuinely remember shirt. this spread. I genuinely yeah. remember this spread, like having yeah. it in there. It's got Roy Keane on the cover of this issue, isn't it? So what yeah, and, the, and the kid with the Everton shirt is just superb. I mean, it's curtains all the way down the middle from the back of his head and then sort of <laughs> just a wee bit on the forehead. It's yeah. fantastic. I Beautiful. love it. They should do it. They should do that much. I much prefer that way to release yeah, kits. This is a, you, I'm trying to figure the date. Where is it? Oh, so this is July 93, this issue of Match Magazine. Oh, wow. With a Notts County poster included. Look at that. Well, I mean, no no good magazine was complete in the 90s, was it, without a Notts County poster? Yeah, there you go. And you can win some Quasar boots. There you go. There's a, there's a blast from the past. But yeah. Um, I'll be talking more about kits later, obviously, on today's show. Um, before we let our guest in, um, he's not really a guest, he's a regular, but we'll get to him in a minute. I thought we shouldn't, we should do the, the show since for the last time there's been a sad passing of 90s-esque player, um, former Rangers, Scotland goalkeeper Andy Gorham sadly passed away in between, which was obviously very sad. He'd been ill for a while, I know, and he'd be deteriorating, so it wasn't unexpected, but obviously sad all the same. Um, one of the 
I think when you think of Scotland goalkeepers, in particularly in the 90s, I think you think of Jim Layton and then you think of Andy Gorham. I think there are very few in between, are they? He was a fantastic keeper for Rangers. He was um, a sensational goalkeeper for Rangers, to be quite honest with you, in an era where, I think in the 90s in Great Britain, you've probably got Peter Michael and yeah. then perhaps David Seaman. After that, you're probably not looking too far past Andy yeah. Gorham, to be honest with you. He was definitely on the same level of the... Nigel Martins, Tim Flowers, he, he could um, definitely, definitely, uh, you know, be up with those guys. And, um, you know, I've always said that you, to win leagues, you've got to have a good goalkeeper. And Rangers had a superb goalkeeper. And though they had a very, very good team in the Scottish League and they did very well in Europe, Andy Gorham definitely won them points at times, which meant that they were able to get to the, the nine in the row. Um, and he was just such a good goalkeeper, good shot stopper, commanded his area all round good goalkeeper um and definitely yeah i mean he was definitely the best scottish goalkeeper of the decade that's not even that's not even a question for me that's you know that's that's settled it was Andy gorham and then after that as i say he was definitely in the top three or four um in the whole of great britain um for me during during that sort of 90 to actually probably all the way through the decade actually yeah probably 98 99 he was still he was still a top-class goalkeeper probably unfairly remembered for obviously year 96 and i mean no the thing is, I mean, you could have put Peter Michael in goal. Yeah, you no one would have said it. Yeah, um, and, you know, a few people wrote on the, the couple of Rangers fans actually wrote on the football tavern when we were talking about Eddie Gorham. They said that he's the best goalkeeper they've seen in their lifetime. Um, yeah. And they've had a few decent goalkeepers as well. Yeah. So, so yeah, it was it was a very, very sad news. Um, so, yeah. so well, young as well. So. Possibly falls into the theme of today's show as well. I was just thinking as as you, as you were saying it there, because what mm-hmm. we're going to do today, and we'll let our guest in in a second because he's in the waiting room. Um, but we're talking overrated and underrated of the 90s. Now, if you go back through the archive, we did an underrated 11 at one point. Um, I think Sid Lambert may have been on it without checking. But yeah, we did. So that was 11 players we thought were underrated. Here we've gone a bit broader. So we'll explain a bit more when we get into the, the real chat. But Andy Gorham, could certainly fill in that underrated category because I think he's somebody who doesn't get talked about enough. So I thought I'd link that definitely nicely. But you've got your overrated, underrated. I'm going to get my words mixed up. I know coming in this show, also <laughs> I believe, I have. haven't you, sir? Right. I have. Yeah. I just before we just before we bring our guests in, I found providing an overrated and underrated thing from a decade I love so much very very difficult yeah. today because in my head that something isn't um underrated it's rated by me do you see what i mean so it's yes. almost like i'm always trying to second guess what people think is underrated yeah. and then overrated i was like well nothing really um but obviously i've got something um, yeah so uh, we'll see we'll we'll see indeed there's a few shouts on social media as well which we'll get to so yeah yeah i'm just reading now. yeah just reading those now I look forward to that yeah someone's going to get right telling off as well we'll get to that though right sure we that's let our guest in we'll speak to him after this Before we get stuck into the brand new episode of Alive and Kicking, I'm delighted to announce a partnership with the amazing Footy Devotion. Footy Devotion have a brilliant range of t-shirts, coasters, prints and mugs, all illustrated by the amazing team at Footy Devotion and inspired by the 1990s as well, with a special range dedicated to Italian 90. And because you listen to Alive and Kicking, the original 1990s football podcast, you can get 10% off your order. Simply use the code AK90s at the checkout and you'll get 10% off. That's AK90s, so AK90S 
and 10% off your order. Jobs are good at. Check out Footy Devotion on Twitter at Footy Devotion and the whole range. I've got a few myself. I've got the brilliant 3pm sweatshirt. I'm looking at a brilliant QPR print kit I've got on my wall. And there's loads and loads to choose from, from World Cups to clubs and many, many more. So check out Footy Devotion. And as always, keep it 90s. Welcome back to Alive and Kicking, where today's show, as we said in the intro, we're going over and under in the 1990s, discussing things that may have been overrated and some that have been underrated, which, as Ed said in the intro, I, I found quite difficult as well. So we're interested to see what we've all uh, picked. Uh, to help us, though, pleasure to welcome back to the show because it's been far too long. He is a writer at The Guardian. He's a podcaster. He's an author. He's got many hats and many pies and all those cliches. Sash in the crani. Sash, how you doing, buddy? I'm good, mate. Yeah, I'm good. As, as I was just saying to you and Ed before we start recording, um, I am good, but also incredibly sweaty and uncomfortable because yes. we are recording this uh, in the middle of a in the middle of a sort of vo- volcano, aren't we? It's, it's ridiculously <laughs> yeah. hot in England at the moment, in London, where I am specifically. Um, I slept OK, but still woke up and felt completely unrested and yeah. sticky and horrible. And uh, I've never liked the summer. I'm a bit of a grump in that sense. I'm a oh, bit of a with you. Yeah, I like the autumn, I like the winter. I like, I like, I like it when you know where you stand with the weather yeah. and, and you get inside and you can feel cosy and have a cup of tea and you sleep comfortably. I, I'm not a summer fan. I've never been a fan of the summer, really. And this summer is just, um, uh, oh, the, the week we're in specifically, which is, what, the second week of July? I've lost track of time. Yeah, 12th of July, we're calling yeah. to let the listeners in behind yeah. the curtain. Um, it's just horrible. It's just been disgusting for about two or three yeah. days. And it's going to get worse as well. I know. I always say, and it's the most boring thing, but I, I'm, it's like a broken record, but it's like, I don't like summer because... In the winter, if you're cold, you can put a jumper on. You can yeah. put the fire on. You, you can get comfortable. When it's this hot, no matter what you do, unless you live in an igloo, you mm. cannot get comfortable. And it does exactly. make it. Does yeah, make it. Exactly. This, is, this is not a weather podcast. Um, <laughs> <laughs> something else that Sasha is not alluded to that we spoke about before, that he's holding his mic like a 90s <laughs> jazz singer at the moment because, yeah. because of some construction he's not in his office. So I either think he's going to burst out into song or he's going to commentate on one of his favourite goals from the 1990s. Yeah. So. Just, just for you, Ash, I might sing Angels by Robbie Williams. Oh, I know no. you love it so much. <laughs> Well, is that is that over or underrated that song? There you go. That I think can... it's I think it's perfectly rated. I think it, it's <laughs> no. it's recognised as being a tune, and it is a tune. But I know Ash absolutely hates it from one yeah. of your previous episodes. I listened exactly. to you guys, and I, I was laughing as I heard Ash rant about angels, which I didn't think anyone would get angry about. You seem to be very angry about. <laughs> it couldn't be more overrated. <laughs> but better than Hanson, eh? I suppose Ed. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, anything is, to be perfectly honest with you. How dare you? How dare you? Sasha, if you were going to blast out a 90s classic, putting you on a spot, what would be your first karaoke go-to? Oh, I tell you what, there's a song, oh, it's probably been over a year now, um, that I've absolutely re- sort of re in love with, or I don't know <laughs> if I did love it at the time, but it's got, it's, uh, well, there's two, actually. Um, I've, I've gone well cheesy over it. You know, well, I like you guys, you guys discussed on the recent episode, there was that brilliant BBC series, wasn't there, yeah. Top of the Pops, which was just yeah. fantastic. Every episode, obviously, a different year in the 90s. I thought it was brilliantly done. They got some phenomenal talking heads in there, all the sort of people who mattered. I thought Mel Gedroich, I think that's how you pronounce her surname, yeah. was great as the uh, as the voiceover person. She just she just sort of captured it perfectly. And so just watching that every Saturday night, just listening to all these brilliant bangers from the, from the 90s. And I think two songs that really stuck in my head from watching that and for my sins i go i run uh, around where i live quite regularly and, and they're on my playlist when i'm running and that is um torn by natalie and bruni oh, I, ju- I just think yeah. it's a great great song and uh 
Dreams by Gabrielle. I know it's an obvious <laughs> thing to say, but it's just it's just a great song. And another song I've really grown to actually grown to love because I didn't love it at the time at all. Picture of You by Boyzone. I oh, think it's an absolute masterpiece. Yes. It's an absolute banger. Uh, Happy, so, that's one of those tunes. Happy. Like when that comes on, I can't yeah. help but smile and want to dance. Wasn't it to the Mr. Bean movie? If yeah, I it was for the right Mr. Bean. Yeah. And I think that's what let it down. It was kind of the video was well, the video was quite sweet actually because he was in the video, but I've never yeah. been a fan of Mr. Bean. I've always thought he's actually no, quite creepy yeah, yeah. and not funny at all. So that probably made me sort of uh, not take to it. But listening to it again, it's great. And uh, I know, Guy, you mentioned actually in the episode you were talking about uh, when you were talking about the Top of the Pop series, Finley Quays, one of those people yes. you sort of completely forget about. Yeah. And then I've downloaded uh, Sunday Shining and a, and a few of the other songs he did um, from that era. And he's just great as well. So I've gone very cheesy over the last few months in terms of the 90s. And I think it's because of that Top of the Pop series, which I know you guys loved and I absolutely adored. It was just... I mean, this is not for this podcast at all, but I think I think me and Ash, we may, we may have spoken about this sort of privately. I just can't believe Top of the Pops isn't on TV anymore. Yeah, I just I know. I can't believe there isn't a show on terrestrial TV that just plays the latest pop music. I just can't mm. understand why that doesn't exist. I think it's bizarre. And I think watching that series sort of showed there's a place for it and it'd be great. It'd be great for this generation to have yeah. their own Top of the Pops, I think. Yeah, especially when you see the viewing figures, which I've heard of, like from watching Glass, like people watching Glastonbury, on the yeah. BBC, oh, I heard that went quite quite really, down. Yeah, it was a lot, wasn't there? That yeah, was a, yeah, it was really high figures. But I, I'm glad that Finley Quay got mentioned because he hasn't had a mention for a while. Uh, what with former, him being former Wiggins left back, yeah. What with him being Wiggins left back in the 2000s? Because <laughs> uh, he was definitely he was that's the definite sort of name that Wigan would have had. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's absolutely spot on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, he's he's, he's, yeah, he's aged well, isn't he? He looks great. Yeah, now. Yeah. He looks, yeah, basically yeah. looks like the same age he was 25 years yeah. ago. So they just, uh, yeah, I mean, just... final point of this before we actually talk some football, but <laughs> they just kind of stopped because they, they advertised the 2000 episode yes. and it's never appeared on telly. So. Yeah, that I thought it was a bit strange. I mean, I'm sort of all right with that because I think my memories of the early 2000s was music was awful. Maybe that's because we were obviously of an age. We were, you know, I was going to university yeah. and stuff, but um, I don't remember. I remember the early 2000s being a bit of a being a bit of a desert for good music, but maybe I'm a bit skewed because obviously everything like you guys, everything like you know, all the good things ended in the 90s, didn't yeah, they? So exactly, maybe yeah. I'm, I'm seeing. It I just that wanted prison. to step over just slightly to that final year because there was a probably you know because I always feel like the first year of a new decade still feels. Yeah, attached yeah, yeah. to the previous, but no, yeah. maybe it'll just pop up at some point. Um, we've talked weather, we've talked music, maybe that's talked football. Um, we uh, we've got a theme, which to be fair, Sashin, you're the one that kind of brought this theme to us, and we thought, yeah, that's that's kind of different. So what we've done, we've kind of we've talked how to do this, but we've each picked an underrated thing from the 1990s and an overrated thing from the 1990s. Um, we'll do one, we'll do one from each, and then afterwards, we've got some social media people that have. Uh, said their own so we can discuss them and there's any honourable mentions that we want to go in um, I found this prep quite difficult Ed found this quite difficult Sash you were straight in with your two so were they always before we start with your first one were they just two things instantly when we talked about this subject well, no, uh, yeah, to give the background to this, so the it was really based around the my overrated thing. So me and you were having a, a chat about my overrated thing, which I won't give away on, on Twitter. I think it was, was it the anniversary? It was the anniversary yeah, of yeah, it. Yeah, it was the anniversary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The anniversary of it, which we'll, I'll say what it is in a second, uh, happened recently. So I think you posted the clip of it via the official <laughs> account, the AK90 <laughs> official account. I then did my usual thing of coming back to you and saying uh, it's not as good as people think it is. We had a bit of a chat about it because I know you love it. It, I, I do. Yeah, and then um, just later that day, I was thinking, I wonder if this is the basis for a quite a good podcast, yeah. discussing things that are underrated. and Because I think this thing is overrated. You think it's, well, rated. I think you think it's at the level it should be. Perhaps you think it's uh, underrated, perhaps. Um, so I thought, it's at the, you know, you know discussing things that are overrated, underrated. So I had that as my underrated. And then 
I didn't actually really have an overrated thing. And then I thought about it for a while. I came up with something. And then literally last night, something else popped into my head. And I was sort of watching telly and I was a bit bored. And I was thinking, I think I've got the kernel for something else, which is a bit something I'd rather explore. So I did a bit of quick Wikipedia. And actually, my, my underrated thing is even more underrated than I remember. <laughs> um, really is underrated, I think. So then, yeah, so that's how that came about. But really, it was all based around my overrated thing, which yeah. was on the back of our, of our discussion. So that, that was easy enough. That was the reason we're doing the pod. The underrated thing took a, took a bit more thought. Yeah. So anyone who wants to play a game while we do this, every time we say underrated or overrated, if you want to, <laughs> if you want to take a shot, you might be very, very merry by the end of it. Yeah. So, um, also, um, as we're doing this in a Room 101 style that we decide, we outvote one another, whether uh, I don't know, it's be underrated or overrated. We haven't got an uh, impartial moderator, have we? Well, that's OK, that, we'll see. We'll see. see. Yeah, that's how we go on. Right. That, you've alluded to it, Sashin. I'm going to let you talk. Then I'm going to let Ed react because I've reacted to this ghastly opinion before so <laughs> i'm gonna let you dig out the goal or i've given away slightly there what you think is the most overrated thing in the 90s and then ed you can react to it go ahead yeah. gents. okay here we go so i'm gonna um yeah first wind up ash and then wind up uh i'll give it i'll start i'll start the process of giving it away and then i'm gonna start winding up arsenal and holland fans <laughs> i should say i don't think this is the most overrated thing in the 90s maybe i do think it's the most overrated thing i just think it's something that is definitely overrated and that is drum roll Dennis Bergkamp's goal for Holland against Argentina uh, in the quarterfinals of France 98. Ed's reaction, my word, his, his okay. head is jerked back in astonishment. Um, okay. Yeah, so everyone knows the goal. Just to give a bit of context, uh, Holland played Argentina quarterfinals of the 1998 World Cup at the Stade Velodrome in Marseille. Uh, it was one all going into, I think, the last three minutes of the game. And then Frank Ball picked up the ball, sort of left side of Holland's half. Played a, um, and this is for me is the best part of the goal, a fantastic long pass into the sort of right uh, channel of, well, the left channel of Argentina's area, where Dennis Bergkamp collected the ball, and I think we all know the rest. Three touches, uh, put the ball past Carlos Roa, won the game for Holland, and they went into the semi finals of the World Cup. It is one of the most um, iconic goals of the decade. And let me just start before I start tearing it apart to say <laughs> it is a great goal. I'm not saying it is not a good goal or a great goal, but I just think the the acclaim that this goal gets is just over the top. So I'll put my case across then. So we all, you know, everyone, you can YouTube it now or, you know, you can pause this podcast if you're listening and, and YouTube, but you've probably seen it a million times already. If you've got any interest in the 90s, I'm sure you know the goal. It's those three touches. Now, the first touch, having I watched the goal again repeatedly yesterday, obviously, in preparation for this. <laughs> the first touch, um, I'll hold my hands up, actually is brilliant. I mean, I always thought it was brilliant, but actually watching again, it is absolutely brilliant. I mean, the ball's played this pass. It's coming at really, you know, high speed, high velocity. It's really dropping over the top of Burkham as he runs into the box. He's having to watch it over his shoulder as he runs at speed into the area. And he kills it absolutely dead uh, with his right foot. I think absolutely stone dead on the, on 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 his sort of on his toe essentially. Absolutely, it's a beautiful touch. It's the second and third touch I just think are are overrated. So the second touch he takes inside Robert Ayala. I don't think that's particularly difficult. And also Robert Ayala makes his mind up for him. He comes charging across. What he should do is just hold Burkamp up, just stand his ground. Go, go. He's coming sort of towards from the sort of penalty spot area towards Burkamp, who's got the ball on, as I said in the left-hand channel of Argentina's area on, on the right side of Holland's attack. Just hold him up, stand him up, force him to keep going in a straight line and force him towards the touchline. Instead, Ayala comes charging across in, a, in an attempt to, to intercept the ball, tackle tackle the ball, however you, or clear the ball, however you want to put it. 
And Burkamp's literally got no option. And actually, it's quite an easy option. And just to cut the ball inside, it's, it's obvious. But I was coming across and just take it inside. The third touch then is the goal. It's pretty, I'm sorry, I just think it's quite an easy finish. Carlos Roa has come charging out of his box, which is absolutely fair. Enough. Oh, charging out his area. He's, he's come towards his near post where Burkamp is. Burkamp's on the edge of the six-yard area. He's got a massive target. The whole goal is in front of him. He's right by it. And he swings the ball into the far corner. The only place he can put it, because Rowe's blocked off the near post with his, with the, you know, with the outside of his foot. I'm sorry, I think it looks like quite an easy finish. I'm sorry, I think it does. I think there's a lot, as I said, because of the goal, because of it was those three touches combined. Yeah. But in isolation, I think the second and third are not that great, which might might be an unfair to assess it. As I said, I do think it's a really good goal. I think, especially given the magnitude of occasion, it's the winner in a World Cup quarterfinal. Um, but I think it gets a lot of praise because of the occasion, because it is a World Cup quarterfinal, but also crucially as well, I think because so many people saw it live, I think we can all remember where we were. It was yeah. Saturday afternoon, wasn't it? We're all watching it on I think it was, it was no BBC because of Barry Davis's iconic yeah. commentary. So we all saw it. It's one of those guys, if it happened on a Saturday at three o'clock at some ground, you know, that there wasn't live coverage of, I don't think it would get a lot of attention. And I think crucially, the other reason it gets so much attention is the player. Look, I love Dennis Burke. I think he's one of the, I think arguably alongside maybe Thierry Henry and maybe Eric Cantona, the greatest foreign player that's ever played in England. But I think he's also one of those players people love going mad about and overanalyzing things he does. That'll be me. Yeah. And like, <laughs> I'll give you an example of this. A colleague of mine at The Guardian, Rob Smythe, and I was reading, reading this article yesterday because I knew he'd done it and it had to jog my memory slightly. But uh, ahead of the 2018 World Cup, we had a series at The Guardian, great World Cup moments. And it's yeah. like long article celebrating, obviously, great World Cup moments. And Rob wrote like a 3,000 word article on Burkamp's goal. It's a brilliantly written article because Rob, Rob is a fantastic writer. But my God, I mean, it starts going into the, an examination of geometry and the pursuit of perfection and the soul of Dutch football. And I'm just thinking, you know, people use that goal to kind of, uh, Rob, if you're listening, sorry for what I'm saying next, to get a bit wanky about football. And Dennis Burkamp is a kind of conduit to get a bit wanky about football. Very true. And if, you know, if some fella from Lincoln had scored that goal, there wouldn't be 3,000 word article about great it is. And before you say, yes, I know if some fella from Lincoln probably couldn't score that goal. But that's also my other point about the goal, which is I think someone of Dennis Burkamp's quality should really be able to score a score a goal like that. I don't think someone of his level, it's actually that brilliant. And to give a comparison, if you take Diego Maradona's goal against England, it's 1986, which I personally think is the greatest goal ever scored. Won't go into why, but I think it's the greatest goal ever scored. I think that goal is even beyond what people thought he was capable of. And that's what makes it a great goal. Whereas I think I look at that Burkamp goal, and I just think, yeah, I sort of think you should be at someone of your level, a high level Premier League international players should be able to do that um so yeah that's my case for for why i think it's overrated as i said really good goal i just don't think it's great and actually by me saying all this i'm also being true to myself because i like you guys i'm sure was the case i watched that goal live when it when it happened in 98 and i didn't go mad then and i'm not going mad about it now and I will stop talking and let you guys come back and, and absolutely eviscerate me for my opinions on Dennis Bergkamp's goal for Holland against Argentina. Mr. Chambers, the case for um, the defence. Okay, case for the defence. Um, okay, this might come as a surprise to you and to some people listening. Um, I actually tend to agree. Hey, uh, I, mean, uh, um, <laughs> I do tend to agree. I think... Um, I think it is a great goal. I don't think um, I don't think that's in question in terms of that it is a good finish and what have you. I think Sash said at the start that it's a good goal and don't say that we're not saying it is a good goal. I think there is a, a very thin line between um, 
overrated and overhyped. I think it's very overhyped given the, as Sash was saying, given the given the event that it was three minutes to go in a World Cup quarterfinal and it is Dennis Bergkamp. But actually, if Dennis Bergkamp scored that goal and it was Holland versus Argentina in a dead rubber game in Group C, you know, both teams, would have, people go, oh, I'll tell you what, that was a pretty good goal. Exactly, but, yeah. it, but now you get a, wow, what was a good goal? And in terms of Dennis Bergkamp goals, I mean, Ash, I did see you tweet the other day that this was the best goal of the decade. I did I think say you that, did, yeah. I think you did say that, which surprised me. Sorry, Trevor Sinclair. Trevor, yeah. Well, come on to that soon. <laughs> and, um, but um, I think it's not, I don't think it was even Bergkamp's best goal of that season. I think the goals at Leicester are actually better than the one against Holland, I uh, against Argentina, sorry. I actually think the one against Sunderland that, that is my the, that's my the, caveat. Yeah, the the the, the pirouette one yeah. where the one and actually his body shape, yeah, his body shape and how it ends up in the top corner still doesn't look right to me. I don't know how he does it, but he makes it look so easy. And then of course, as you just mimicked it, but you do the celebration. He covered his mouth, sort of thing. Mm-hmm. I think that's a better goal than this one. Uh, so basically, I think Dennis Burkamp actually has a better back catalogue of goals. <laughs> Than this goal that has been described by some, and not just you, Ash, by some as the best goal of the decade. I think it's the occasion that makes the goal. So I have to say that if we were doing a vote on this, I would tend to agree with Sash. Yeah, I think you you both make very, very valid points. And I think the occasion is the biggest angle of it. I think if you swapped that Sunderland goal particularly with that with the with the Argentina goal, and they happened at the different occasions, would be waxing lyrical about the Sunderland goal as well and saying it's the goal of the decade the occasion definitely befits the, the hype that it gets because it was a world cup quarter final it was against argentina who were considered a pretty decent team at that point as well so totally what fascinates me about the goal and I'm, you haven't actually in that long rant sash you haven't mentioned the one sort of turn of phrase that i remember when we discussed this before is that the long ball from frank de boer and it's the first touch i remember when we discussed this previously that you said something in the lines of it should be expected for a footballer of his calibre to be able to take that ball down. Yeah, I, I'm time. going to retract that. I do think the first touch, watching it again, is is sublime. I must yeah. admit, yeah. I think, I think, I think, us more well, not us mortals, because we all play seven aside, five aside, and we all try, and we never can pull it off. I don't think there's, I think it's few things harder in life than controlling a ball yeah. that's coming over your shoulder and you're running onto. It's, I mean, I consistently make a fluff of it in Thursday seven aside and watching it again it's a beautiful touch so as I said I think the first touch is majestic I retract any criticism in the first touch but I I will absolutely die on a hill over the second and third one I just don't think they're that good it's that touch that I just think makes it and then it's for me I agree the second and third touches aren't the most you know brain twisting amazing moment I've seen but it's the quick thinking to do it in yeah. that moment. And it, it, I kind of liken it to a, a tennis player. Like I think tennis is the hardest game to play because you have those literally half a second to think, what am I going to do next when that ball flings over the net from the other yeah. side of the opponent? I think tennis is such a hard game to play. And it's kind of like that. He has to think in those split seconds. Yes, the stage comes into it as well with millions watching, knowing that what he has to do at that moment, because he could think that doing it down Richmond Park and it wouldn't matter. But he has to think when there's millions of people in the stadium, millions of people watching at home, what to do in those two instances, how am I going to get around it? And yes, the defender doesn't do what he probably should do. Rower does come out too far and they may have made some difference to what he does. I just think that combining the, the touch from that amazing ball, the quick thinking, there are very few footballers I think could do that. I think 
I, I see what you're saying, and I you kind of it was a good case of the defence. I think that players of a world class standing think like that and act naturally and are under that pressure all of the time. Um, so let's take uh, obviously more modern day, but Aguero's winner um, against yeah. QPR that won the league. He has a split second to decide whether he's going to take one touch, two touches, or or bang it. Yeah, and obviously he made the decision he made, and he scores a goal. It's great players make great decisions in a very very short space of time, um, and Dennis Bergkamp did that because he is a great player, but that doesn't necessarily make it a great goal. Um, I, th- I think it's I the co- for me it's the combination between that yeah. and the ball. I mean Frank the ball kind of gets left out of this, but really he plays such a massive part. Because if yeah. the ball isn't as good as that ball is, yeah. however Burkamp controls it, then he yeah. doesn't. The goal doesn't happen. But no, of I course, think but... I'm very much still in the favour. I can see the points made, and I do yeah. think the occasion hypes the goal to a level that it probably may not have been if it had been scored against Wigan on a Tuesday night. Yeah. I don't know, but you know, or, ba- or Barnsley on an FA Cup fourth round Saturday afternoon. Goal, no one yeah. remembers goal of the season. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Beat, beat David Beckham to goal of the season, I must yeah, add, as right. well. Um, but, you know, OK, so we'll, we'll, we'll leave that there because otherwise we'll have the podcast just on that goal. Um, yeah. Seeing as you, you're there, Ed, what is your... Because I'm going to quickly gloss over mine because the more I think about it, the more I don't believe it, but I will get there. <laughs> <laughs> Ed, what is your most overrated aspect of the 1990s? OK, so I really, really struggled overrated. As I said in the intro, I think there's a lot of things about this decade that I love. Um, so it's very hard to pick something that was overrated. So I've gone slightly different, but mine is still France 98 related. Mm. Mine is, right, I just couldn't have fantasy football on ITV <laughs> in 1998, OK? Now, the reason I couldn't have fantasy football on ITV, there's a number of reasons for this. So I first started watching fantasy football in its first series, OK? Like a lot of people probably listening did. Um, and it was very, very... Uh, it was niche. It was it was new. Uh, there was an episode that started where David Baddiel was actually making a cup of tea for Frank in the kitchen. It felt like you, you'd been brought into these blokes' flats and it was very sort of men behaving badly meets yeah. football. Um, and it... And that was and that was great. And the first two or three series that are on the BBC are very, very good. Even some of them now I still watch back every now and then on YouTube and they still make me laugh. Um, 25 years, 25 years later, it moved to ITV for this World Cup. Um, and there's a few things that happened, which I'll come on to in a sec. But it felt like it had gone from being, if I can give it an analogy, it feels like it, it went from seeing your favourite band play in a very small arena and that was their level, to them them playing at sort of Wembley Stadium and it being overhyped and them not feeling like your band anymore because there was kids at school going, oh, did you see fantasy football last night? And you were like, you'd never even heard of it six months ago. But now suddenly everybody was watching it and it felt a bit forced, a little bit try-hard. The episode with Bridget Nilsson, which I think was actually the first one, is yeah. totally embarrassing. Like, I, I genuinely, I've never found it funny. I think they knew what she was like before she went on there. Otherwise, they wouldn't have put her on there because it probably makes good TV. Um, The only bit that was funny of that was when David Baddiel asked her, why did Sylvester Stallone divorce you? I think it was pretty obvious why, because she was bonkers. And, um, you know, I think I didn't even like the theme tune. I didn't like I didn't like the Phoenix from the Flames theme tune. I just didn't like anything about it. I can rant about it 
until the cows come home. Obviously, it's completely different to Dennis Bergkamp, a completely different take. It just wasn't the show that it was, and I couldn't stand there being adverts in the middle of it. So there you go. So for, for that reason, I've said that Fantasy Football 98, which a lot of people seem to love, I didn't like it. And that was my personal preference. And remaining true to myself is still the case today. Yeah. Sash, what, what, what's your take? I mean, we're all obviously big fantasy football fans. Ed, I do feel like they are making a remake at the moment, so your head might explode when that comes on telly, mm. but that's for another day. Uh, Sash, what, where where'd you take on that? Where's your in-between the BBC and, and ITV's versions? Yeah, it's an interesting shout. Um, yeah, I think probably largely agree with a lot of that. Um, I do remember watching it. I think one of the problems it suffered with it was... Um, it was on every night, wasn't it? If yeah, I'm not yeah. mistaken. And I think there's obviously then going to be a quality issue because if you're producing something every single day, the quality levels are, are going to fall. And yeah, I think we just had too much of it. And yeah, there was a lovely niche feel about it when it was on in the, uh, you know, first came on in um, on BBC, you know, it was like on a Friday night, wasn't it? I think like yeah, 9.30. Late night, yeah. yeah, late night on a Friday or when it was first came around on the BBC. And obviously the thing that makes me laugh is the title. It's called Fantasy Football and they dropped the Fantasy Football element of it yeah. after about one series, um, which, you know, but they stuck with the title. Um, yeah, I, d- I don't have sort of strong memories of it. I remember watching it because I say I loved it from its BBC days. I absolutely agree with Ed that the advert break spoiled it because that quite literally made it a, a, a very commercial program where it had a real mm. punk feel on the BBC, literally then became a show that was commercialised because it had commercials. And I think there was that thing, wasn't there, in the 90s, and it's less so now, where the BBC just ruled for football in the 90s. They kind of, you know, they had Des, and they just had the vibe, to use that very Love Islandy word. They just had the vibe. They got, there was a, something about football being on the BBC which was cool in a way that it wasn't on the ITV. And so anything the ITV equivalents were just never as good. And that was obviously, you know, everyone watched the World Cup final on the BBC as opposed to ITV. When Des went to ITV, I think that was maybe the noughties, but anyway, so roughly the same time. Yeah. It was early, early noughties. Um, he wasn't as good. When the Premiership was on ITV, it wasn't as good as when it was on the BBC. And I would agree, when Fantasy Football switched, it just, there's just something about things being on the ITV that had previously been on BBC that just didn't quite work. I agree on the Bridget Nielsen interview. I remember watching at the time, watching it afterwards, and it was... I didn't enjoy it at all. It was it was really uncomfortable. I think I think David Badil and Frank Skinner both said subsequently as well. It was really it was just a really unpleasant experience yeah. from, from their point of view as well. So yeah, I largely agree. I, I, as I said, I don't remember the time sort of going to school every day, going, "Oh, did you like like it?" Like Ed's sort of saying he did go with kids going, "Oh, did you see fantasy football last night?" I, I can't quite remember how much love there was for it at the time. But yeah, I agree. I, it, it absolutely was not the same than it had been on the BBC. And, I, and they came back for Euro 2004 as well, I think. Yeah. Uh, but in fact, absolutely they did. I remember that quite clearly. And again, I don't think I don't think that was the same either. Yeah. I think the aspect that they did drop eventually, the, the fantasy football film, when they used to have the celebrities in the manager coats and they'd show the league table yeah. and all that. I mean, I think that also knitted it together really nicely. I know they dropped that on the BBC as well, but it kind of felt like that was missing from... Like it was kind of a central theme from the ITV version. That I don't think they ever kind of got to, and it felt more like a sketch show, which mm. may maybe more they were going for, and maybe that's what people liked about it more than the the fantasy element of it. But I like that as well. Um, yeah, I agree. Most of the points you're saying. I mean, I don't remember much else from the ITV version other than Bridget Nielsen, and I think Noel Gallagher on the the night that England went out to yeah. Argentina. I think he said something like "Thanks, Kevin," because obviously the famous line that. I recently learned that um, Brian Moore actually really, well, one of his biggest regrets in life was putting Kevin Keegan on the spot during that Argentina. Yeah, he said it, that, yeah. Yeah, they went out for dinner, realize, I think, that yeah. night and he apologised to him for uh, 
for it. Yeah, for it. Yeah, absolutely. He massively regretted that. Yeah. Yeah, which uh, which is, un- yeah, I think it's unlike a commentator to do that kind of thing. So, yeah, I, I think, I think that the story. other thing, sorry, Ash, I think the other thing about fantasy football, which probably I didn't allude to, was that, that it was obviously live because it was on yeah. every night, whereas in BBC it was recorded. So it probably did make the same mistakes, but you were just watching it um, live. But the, Bridget Nielsen thing. I think um, Johnny Rotten was on it as well. Yeah. Um, I think he made a bit of a bit of a show of himself. Well, they had to get rid of it, right didn't they? Yeah, they yeah, had to. They right. had to tell, yeah, they had to go to they, maybe the ad break. I think they yeah. had, they went to the ad break and then basically got him off the show because he was pissed yeah. and being really offensive. And when they came back after the break, he wasn't there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it it wasn't for me. And so in that case, I think that was overrated. Probably not overrated. I just it was just an old man rant, but I just didn't like it. Whereas a lot of people seem to seem to like it. All right, let me have my old man rant because here we go. I feel like I probably should retire my nineties and this hosting duties to this podcast when I say this. Um, it's something I have said before. I don't know if I've said it on the show, but Edgy may have me heard me say it in the past as well. Um, I feel slightly easier saying it in twenty twenty two, which you'll know as soon as I say what I say because events now share this person in a different kind of light. But I never really... You, you know, Ed's just... Don't do it. Don't do it. He knows what I'm going to say. Don't do it. I never really got the major fuss, boom, 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 over Matt Letizia. I kind of always thought he was a bit of a highlight reel player. And let me put the, you know, the disclaimer card. He was a phenomenal footballer. I know that. And he scored some phenomenal goals in the 1990s. Pivotal in Southampton, stay in the league. I know that. But I do always, always think that that was his level. I don't think that his loyalty was the only thing that kept him moving on from, let's be honest, at the time, they weren't even the top, top clubs. It was a Chelsea and a Tottenham who, at the time, were they weren't championship-winning clubs. They were teams who could win a trophy, maybe able to push on. They're always the clubs I remember him being linked to, Chelsea and Tottenham. But he never went. And he all, and I admire the loyalty, but at the same time, I always think if you're a footballer at the pinnacle of your career and you're as good as everyone kind of thinks you is and you've shown you are, why aren't you moving to a bigger club? I mean, I you know, we'd all do it in a footballer's position. You always want to progress in any career. I always think that you want to progress to, to the top of your game. Um, England managers ignored him. Like and I and we can say what we want about the England managers throughout the decades, the style of play, the players they've chosen. I know Graham Taylor ignored Chris Waddle for a long time, and I don't agree with that. I just don't think any England manager ever trusted Matt Letizia to be a consistently international footballer, and that's because I think he reached his limit at Southampton. I love seeing some of his goals. I love that night at the Dell when he scored three goals against Newcastle, and they're all very different. And they're all very good. He's a playground footballer. I just don't think he was as good as everyone thought he could have been. I was at Loftus Road that time for an England B game. I think he got a hat-trick against Russia and Ferdinand and Sinclair got the other goal, which was more important to all us because we were at Loftus Road seeing them combined together for an occasion that they hadn't done since they both moved on. But even then I was kind of like, yeah, I can see what you're doing, but you're playing beating football. He was never the fastest, obviously. He was skillful, but only to a certain extent of what tricks he knew. I wouldn't ever expect him to take on players as much as, Others we'd seen in, in that decade, maybe Janine, maybe even the King Kladzi as well as the players that came in kind of a bit later than him. And there is an even argument. I know he kept Southampton alive and kicking, to pardon the pun, for a long time. That if he hadn't been there, Southampton could have built a team that wasn't just centred and so important around him. And they may not have been facing relegation struggles throughout the 1990s. So... I used to have this argument with my dad at the time. My dad always used to pick him for the, his dream team or fancy football league. And I was always like, never really got it. Although 
as I've said many times on this occasion, my dad didn't ever rate Alan Shearer, which is a ridiculous, overrated opinion that won't be allowed on this podcast. So, yeah, I'm putting it forward. I'll put my tin hat on now because I can see Eddie's scribbling notes about ready to, to lambast me for this. But yeah, Matt Letizia, sorry, mate. Ash, do you want to go first? <laughs> yeah, let me get out of the way because I think you're going to absolutely tear into Ash, and I, no, um, so that, that could that's the, that feels like the main event, and I'm not. <laughs> I, I think I think he makes a lot of valid points. I think, um, yeah, I I mean I, I liked Matt Letizia. I think I, I I mean he's an absolute loon now. I'm sure yeah. st- stay absolutely clear of him and never allow him to speak again. But I have a a nostalgic fondness for him because I think Matt Letizia was a player, such a 90s player, and in the sense that there's no way Matt Letizia could play fo- yeah. top-flight football now. You know, the game is so fast and aggressive and athletic now. There's no way someone who's got a bit of a beer belly and who doesn't uh, move, uh, who basically plays the entire game between, you know, the um, ed- you know the halfway line and the edge of the opposition's area and doesn't shift from there would ever be allowed to play professional football now. So he's, he was a real player for his time. That time as the 90s, it's an era we all obviously love. So, so I have a sort of nostalgic fondness for him. Um, he ha- yeah, he absolutely scored some of the most iconic goals of that decade. You know, you mentioned the Newcastle three, the one at Blackburn, which I think he considers his, his, his best ever goal. Um, I certainly didn't have real an issue with him never playing well for England. I think he got did he get one cap? I, I sort of I think he played under Terry Venables and then, and then never played again because I do think he was quite a difficult player to fit into a, into a team. Where did he play? He was sort of a number ten, but not really. Certainly wasn't centre midfield. Certainly wasn't a striker. Obviously, he couldn't play him wide. So I agree with you, Ash, that he was quite a limited player. Mm. Um, I certainly don't have any strong objections to what you're saying. I think you put a very very solid case across. Um, the loyalty thing, yeah, it's interesting. Was it actually? Oh, well, I think actually the thing with Leticia and the loyalty thing, I, I don't know if it was necessarily a lack of ambition or, or anything like that. I just think he's a very sort of homely person, and I think he found, I think for him, sort of quality of life was really important. I heard an interview he did quite a while back where he spoke about that. He was just really settled in the area where where he lived in Southampton and, and just loved the area. So I think that had, you know he wasn't. I don't think he was a hugely ambitious footballer. I think he just enjoyed playing football. He enjoyed his life work balance if you like and so that's why he stayed and didn't want to go to the bright lights of London um just one little story about Matt Letizia um which I always love because he grew up in Guernsey didn't he yeah he did yeah. this interview I heard him do was on a podcast years ago and he said that when he's growing up he's kind of explaining what a lovely place Guernsey was and he obviously has a lot of affection for it and he says that in Guernsey that they used to do this thing called they used to have this thing called honesty boxes which was if you wanted to get rid of something like a like a bike or a a wardrobe or a, like a guitar or anything you could put it outside your house next to a with a box and just say to people you can take this bike you can take this uh musical instrument whatever um just leave whatever you think is worth in the box and people would literally like leave 50 quid in the box and the two things amazing about that is people putting the 50 quid in there but also nobody else then subsequently nicking it yeah yeah and i just think where i grew up near sort of catford and lewisham you know with all due respect to the good people of catford and lewisham a fifty pound note wouldn't last three seconds outside my ass. It'd be it'd be gone, uh, and nobody would be paying for the sort of stuff left outside in the first place. Anyway, a side story there, but no, I think valid case, Ash. I think he was a yeah. He's highlights player is a great way to put it. I think he yeah he was limited. I don't have any objections to him not playing for England. I, I think he was a difficult player to fit. I'm not sure he was international level quality, but I've um, beyond the fact that as he's an absolute uh, car crash of a human being now, I do have a lot of fondness for him because I think he was a very very nineties player. Yeah, I think that's the only thing I I feel bad about saying he does he's one of those icons of the decade like we took the 90s yeah. it wouldn't go too far in a pub discussion before someone would bring up Matt Letizia and I, and I feel I'm betraying my beloved decade by <laughs> saying it but as you said Ed being true to yourself I was just I was never there but go on 
lambast me all you want. Um, no, I don't think I'm going to lambast you. Um, being slightly topical, I'm going to put forward a vote of no confidence in you running <laughs> this podcast. Um, I think to everybody listening, um, you've betrayed a whole decade in one morning. Um, I think, uh, no, I mean, they're, they're good points. I can see I can see where you're coming from. I see where you're both coming from. And also, I have to add that when we did the England sort of in the early 90s podcast, Stu from, you know, Stu's feet yeah. flashbacks actually agreed with you as well so three that's three people whose uh, opinions that I very respect about football in the decade so maybe I'm in the wrong I thought Letitia was um, obviously yes incredibly talented um, he was an entertainer the England thing I don't think um, I think he was international quality I do believe he was international quality but I don't think he was a gas going good enough to build a system around because he was a type of player that you had to build a system around. So if you had Gascoigne and Letitia in the team for um, Euro 96, for example, it wouldn't have worked um, because the rest of the team would have been complete, um, completely overworked themselves. Um, so I, I think there was a system issue with Letitia in terms of where you actually do point him. He scored, in my opinion, he scored so many great goals that I think it goes beyond a highlights reel and just becomes the class player. Um, somebody like Danielson, who played for you know Real Betis Brazil, does 15 million step overs. That's a highlight show reel player. Whereas Matt Letizier contributed to keeping Southampton up. As you said, that if he'd have moved on, then Southampton could have rebuilt. I think if he moved on, Southampton would have sank. Um, he retired. What happened to Southampton? They got relegated. Well, yeah, he was past his best yeah. by that point, but no, I actually... But, I yeah, yeah. so a couple of years later, they got relegated, yeah? So I I understand what you're saying. I just believe that he really was a class player and could have played in any team in that decade. He's definitely not a player for today. Now, funnily enough, the one the one name I wrote down here, Ash, while you were speaking, because we were talking about this when we were out on Saturday, Jack Grealish. Now, I, I, I really, really rate Jack Grealish, but you and our friend John, you know, we were having the conversation and you said, well, he's an impact player. He comes in off the bench for England, does a great job, but for 90 minutes. But for that impact that he comes on, what an impact he has. And I always thought Letitia was very, very similar. So I, not I, a bad see, comparison. Yeah. I see not similarities in their play, but similarities in what they could have done in their respective decades. So... In 20 years' time, somebody might be trying to defend Jack Grealish <laughs> against somebody who thought he was overrated. You see, you see what I mean? So, but Jack is, Grealish has is, made a hundred million pound move. He has made that move. That's what I'd say about Jack Grealish. So we'll see. If uh, absolutely, absolutely. absolutely. But I think <laughs> I think Sash said that uh, nobody should talk to Matt Letizia or at least listen to Matt Letizia. So maybe maybe some of his current day thinkings were you know, slightly different in the 90s to your ordinary footballer, and maybe that's why he didn't want to make the move as well. Um, but I think that he was very talented. I do think he was international class, but there were better players or different players to build a system around. Um, Venables thought it, Hoddle thought it. He was slightly ish too young for Graham Taylor, I think. Yeah. But, um, you know, Graham Taylor never called him up. So, so yeah, I th- I th- it's a difficult one. I don't, I don't totally think that you're wrong and absolutely bunkers, but I do think you're slightly wrong. That's better than I thought it was going to be. That's better. Right. I think before we go more positively, I'm going to put those three opinions on the, the Twitter and they can decide which one goes yeah. into room 101 and be our impartial yeah. Yeah. 
yeah. factor in this because I think we'd exactly. argue to the hills if we we're going to argue over Burkamp fancy football and Matt Letizia being the most overrated thing for the 1990s yeah. so yeah. we'll do that and that's flip reverse it and talk about more positive the underrated things of the 1990s so Sasha yeah, you switched yours so I'm going to let I'm going to draw the curtain back slightly and say your original mention was from Stephen Manham which fair enough I think we've actually pretty much said ad nauseum on this show how underrated Steve McManaman was as a footballer so I think collectively in our episode we've actually done that argument and I still stand by it but who have you and what or what have you switched to for your underrated aspects of the 1990s yeah yeah just saying Steve McManaman I I didn't want to do that ultimately because it's a bit cliched for me to talk about a Liverpool player from the 90s I thought it was just a bit boring and it feels like I think I came on obviously this podcast but I think March was it to talk about sporting Liverpool in the 90s and I think we talked about him then so I just thought I wanted something to do with something a bit more original. Just say really quickly, yeah, I think Stephen Mann was brilliant for Liverpool in the 90s. Probably doesn't get the, uh, certainly the love from the Liverpool fans and probably the broader sort of football-watching society uh, public that he deserved for what he did. And obviously went on to Real Madrid, won two European Cups, two La Ligas with them. So was one of the great exports from this country as well. And I think he probably does deserve more appreciation than he gets. Saying that then, I decided to do something different. And as I said, it was literally last night, sitting there watching telly, and I just had this kernel of an idea, and I sort of went into a bit of a Wikipedia, Google rabbit hole, and I discovered that the thing that I think is underrated is actually even more underrated than I think um, it, it is, if that makes sense. And that is the managerial career of Glenn Hoddle. Um, this is interesting. Yeah. Glenn Hoddle, when you get into it, is one of the best managers of the 90s, just consistently. So if we start... At the very start, Swindon Town. Yeah, Swindon. Um, just give a very quick potted history. They were um, they won the nineteen ninety playoff, a uh, second division playoff final, the old actual proper second division when it was the second tier, what's now the Championship. They beat Sunderland in the nineteen ninety uh, playoff final. They were meant to get up to the first division. They didn't get promoted because uh, it was discovered there's some financial irregularities around them, and they were actually demoted two divisions to the third division on appeal they were allowed just to drop back one division to the second division. And they and they basically had turmoil because of the financial issues around the club. They had to sell a lot of their best players. One of them was Alan McLaughlin, I think his name is. Mm. And in the 1991 season, they finished, I think I've got to right, 21st in the league. They just about avoided relegation. They were in absolute turmoil. Uh, Glenn Hoddle became manager during that season. I'm just going to let me just double check. With you. Yeah, March 91, he took over. They were as his, they were struggling, as it said on Wikipedia. And I'm sure this is absolutely true. In the in the aftermath of financial scandal, they had to sell, as I said, loads of their best players because of that. Alan McLaughlin being one of them. And over the next two years, he completely turned them around. Mm. Uh, he got them uh, stabilised in the second division and then they won promotion to the first division at the end of the 92-93 season, beat Leicester in one of the classic player finals, 4-3 at Wembley. And they did it playing brilliant football. He introduced a 3-5-2 formation. He did it as a player manager, one of those very classic 90s things that we don't see anymore. Um, and he was a sweeper in that team and was absolutely excellent uh, for the team. The team that's played great. If you talk to, you know, I know a Swindon fan, they all talk about that team being probably in terms of pure football quality, the best team they've ever had. Um, you know, really sophisticated, head of its time type of team. So he got Swindon promoted. He then went to Chelsea in 1994. And his record at Chelsea, in the Premier League, they were pretty average. It was kind of mid-table, 8th to about 11th. But uh, cup, cup performances, why they're absolutely extraordinary. So at the end of his first season, he got them to the 94 FA Cup final. They lost 4-0 to United about the time. We're obviously the best team in the country. They won a double that year. Uh, he got them to another FA Cup semi-final in 96, just before he took over as, as England manager. 
And something I had absolutely no recollection of, I don't know if you guys were aware of this, he got them to the 1994-95 Cup Winners' Cup semi-final. Because uh, obviously they went into the Cup Winners' Cup because yeah. they got to the FA Cup final in 94. And then the following season, they got to the semis. It was their first time in Europe in, in 20 years. And they lost to Real Zaragoza in the semis. Zaragoza obviously played Arsenal in the final, the classic Naeem game. Mm. I had no recollection of them. Getting, I mean, that's an extraordinary achievement. It first is, time yeah. back in Europe in 20 years, he got them to the semi-finals. He brought Rude Hullet to this country, which I think is a really important foreign signing. Massive, I'm sure massive, you guys remember yeah. as well. There was obviously that, it was that what time of that wave of exciting foreign players coming to this country. But I would say he was the most high-profile one. I mean, I, you know, I wasn't, you know, I'm not a Chelsea fan, but I was ludicrously excited when Rude yeah. Hullet came to England. He had Chelsea playing very similar style of football at uh, Swindon did 3-5-2 I think Hullet became the sweeper in that team and again they played really good football so when they were getting to these two cup finals and one cup se- sorry two cup semi-finals and one cup final in this sort of three-year period or two-year two period under him they were doing it playing really good football he then goes to England and we all obviously know the story there um, he got to the 98 World Cup when qualifying for the World Cup was still a tough thing to do it's not it's like now yeah. yeah tough group obviously that night in Rome the famous night in Rome he got England to the World Cup Again, 3-5-2, playing really modern, sophisticated football. That England team of 98, for me, is the best footballing England team of my lifetime. I thought they were great. Mm. Obviously, we know what happened against Argentina. And if Beckham doesn't get sent off, and if that Sol Campbell goal counts, they, they win, probably. And who knows how far they get in the tournament. Probably don't win it, but they could have got to the semis quite easily. They could have beaten Argentina instead of, um, you know, Argentina obviously lost to Holland, as, yeah. as we discussed in the Burkamp goal. Um and obviously ended in 98 in, in unfortunate circumstances. I'm not going to make any excuses for what he said. He probably should have been sacked for what he said uh, about disabled people. But my sort of thought is how different the history of the English national team could have been if Hoddle had stayed manager. Can you imagine Glenn Hoddle in charge of the golden I just, generation? I was just thinking that. I was just thinking that that's a great kind of what if discussion. And yeah. me, me and Ed have, just, have talked before about doing a series on here about what ifs. But the, I think the trouble is there are so many that you that we've yeah. got boggled down. But that's a great one. Like I think if he had, you know, Beckham, Scholes, Lampard, Gerrard, obviously Owen at his absolute peak. Um, the very Ferdinand, I mean, Rio Ferdinand in a Glenn Hoddle team. Yeah. Can you imagine? Yeah. So, England at the it's... 2002, 2006 World Cups, 2004 Euros under Glenn Hoddle. I mm. think they win one of those. I genuinely do. Yeah. They weren't far off under Sven, who played pretty basic 4 4 2 football. And ultimately, I think his managerial career is looked at as being pretty sort of average stroke poor because of what, you know, the way he left England and what happened since after that, he wasn't very good. He went to what like Wolves and Southampton and Tottenham and didn't yeah. do much. But if you look at what he did in the nineties, the entire decade, Swindon, Chelsea, England, he was absolutely superb, not just achieving beyond what he should have achieved, but doing it, playing really good, sophisticated, modern, progressive, smart football. And yeah, I think in the nineties, Glenn Hoddle should be recognized as being one of the best managers of his generation. I, even Southampton, I'll let you talk in, but even Southampton, I know that was going into the next decade. I know he was only there a season, but he managed to stabilise them. And then when he left, they were like 10th in the league, which at that mm. time, Southampton, yeah. as we've already alluded to, were perennials relegation battlers. So, yeah. Ed, obviously we had him on the podcast back <coughs> in the last year and we very much enjoyed talking to Glenn. But I yeah. think it's hard to argue any point and we've all underrated the career of Glenn Hoddle, haven't we? I'm I'm actually not going to argue with a single word that Sasha yeah. just said, which is uh, quite quite uh, unique for me. Um, yeah, Sasha, absolutely right. He was a great manager. Um, you mentioned about Rio Ferdinand uh, there. Funnily enough, when he was on the show, he genuinely believes that as world-class a defender as Rio Ferdinand was, 
he actually believes in a Glenn Hoddle system in the middle, being the one that brings the ball out into midfield, that Rio Ferdinand could have been even better than he actually yeah. was. Yeah. Uh, he genuinely believes that Rio Ferdinand could have brought the ball out into midfield and almost operated as a sweeper slash midfielder, very much like a sort of Matthias Semmer, Lothar Mateus type in later, later career that they that they have in the like the German league. Um Fabulous, fabulous man. As you mentioned, Swindon. Um, yeah, you're right. Um, Swindon. I don't think I've ever come across a Swindon fan that has ever had a bad word to say about Glenn Hoddle. Um, in his first full season as manager, they were they were doing quite well, but they ended up. Uh, I think Blackburn nicked uh, Duncan Shearer, their main striker, mm. and uh, Blackburn nicked Duncan Shearer because one that they could because they had all the money, but two, Swindon were becoming a little bit of a threat to Blackburn. Um, so they decided to take his main striker and he then had to wait another year to get them into the playoffs and then get them up to the Premier League. At Chelsea, you know, the, you mentioned the Zaragoza thing. Um, they were 3-0 down from the first leg. Uh, they got three goals back in the second leg, but unfortunately let in an away goal, which is obviously the, the nail in the coffin that away goals used to be. So he was a, he was very close to getting them to a Cup Winners' Cup final as well. So I don't think England ever recovered from losing that no. at all. I honestly don't. I think... I think uh, we went straight into Keegan, I think, which wasn't it, that time. I don't look upon that time fondly at all, Kevin Keegan. Sven for a little while, then no. Uh, McLaren, no. Capello, no. It, you know, it, the list, Hodgson, no. The list goes on and on and on. And it's almost to the point where we are now with Gareth Southgate. And so it's almost like we've waited 20 years for Club England, Team England to actually look good and start playing decent football. And I think... We missed a trick there. I know it was his own fault, um, but Venables into Hoddle was a seamless transition. And I think England, as Sash quite rightly said, that England probably played even better football under Hoddle, which we didn't even think was possible after Venables. So great manager. Couldn't agree more. It's one of those as well, like because often the opinion gets thrown at someone like Glenn Hoddle, as good as he was. And I'm ashamed that I'm that little bit young, that I didn't really see Glenn Hoddle in his pomp as a player. But obviously yes. I've seen retrospectively I've seen the clips and how good he was but they always players that good when they go and manage it they there's always that kind of accusation at them that they don't get their points across to players who are nowhere near as good especially they start in lower league but somehow Glenn seemed to be such a good manager that he galvanized a team that probably had that point no right to be you know promotion contenders and the, the state of the club they were in so it, it says a lot to even someone that young being player manager as well and it always mm. reminds me of a a great FA Cup tie with um, Swindon, QPR Swindon had in those very early days. And we had Ray Wilkins and they had Glenn Hoddle and it was pitted at these two luxury, brilliant footballers are now kind of in their final days. And you will always remember that it was on live on Sky. We won the game, but they were such a good team. It was the season they got promoted. So yeah, I, I totally agree. I think it's a great, great shout. And it really is. It, it, I do wonder, because I always wonder about Terry Venables if he hadn't quit in 96, because that was kind of forced upon him because of off the field things as well. What England yeah. would have been. But I think Glenn Hoddle is an even more mind-boggling thing to see what that England team could be. Yeah, I think I think the only thing about Hoddle that's labelled at Hoddle that you read and you you do speak to a couple of people uh, about him is that he his man management skills may not have been the best. I think if you combined Venable's man management skills and Hoddle's sort of tactical knowledge yeah. and the way the game was played. I think you've got the perfect brand of an English football manager. I think there's certain things that Hoddle did that 
maybe upset certain players at times. But um, I think that's what John that, Gorman was all about, wasn't it? I think John Gorman was the man manager because you know I always mm. think a, a, an assistant can be a, you know a, nearly as important as the manager you have. You have to have the right assistant to complement yep. your style of management. I think John Gorman certainly was that. He was never a number one, unfortunately. It obviously, didn't work out for him at Swindon when he was taking the reins. But I think John Gorman for sure. Um, played an important part in that. Um, I'll go next then, and then we'll finish on you, Ed, because um, mine is the customary kit angle, because I had to throw in a kit into this. And there are many I chose. And before I talk about the kit as well, there, there are a few things that went through my mind. I was going to go very QPR and talk about, and I haven't mentioned it yet, being top London club in 92, 93, and that team being underrated. Because I think I still think to this day, but I might be biased that that team finished above Arsenal, Chelsea and Spurs, who are much probably going into that season, a much better teams looked upon than that Jerry Francis QPR team and the players they had in that in, in themselves, like Bardsley and Wilson at fullback, totally underrated. And as a whole, I, I even went to the point I almost chose Les Ferdinand as well as being the most underrated player of the 90s. But I think he was PFA player of the year. I think he got his flowers in the end. Maybe I'm being a little bit QPR hat on there. So let's do the customary kit. And what made me think of kits is because we live in this age, especially when a tournament runs around and we should be enjoying a World Cup now and it would be at full fever pitch if, in, in this term, when retro remakes, my like the bane of my life, are all wild. Everyone's wearing them. You know, the England kits without the Umbro logo from the 90s, which make me shudder every time I see them. Or they're wearing a literal kit from them. And you always get the 1990s amazing kits. The first, the, the home, the away, then the third, the blue one that they only wear once. And then the following season, the blue with the three lions, which is one of my favourite kits of all time. Then you get the Euro 96 kits, even the grey kits become more popular over time because of its iconicity, I think, to, to that decade rather than the fact that we lost in it to Germany. Even the 98 kits have started to come retro, but they miss a trick. And because it's a bit like when we talked, Sash, when you were on before, we talked about the uh, the famous white seats in 96. People only remember them because you lose and see it as an excuse. But the England kits under Graham Taylor in 93 to 95 People miss out these kits because mainly England weren't very good and we didn't qualify for the 1994 World Cup. So everyone immediately just forgets that reign. And they, just, and, the, and they don't weren't worn for a tournament. So when you don't see a kit worn at a tournament, they kind of fade into your back of your mind. There was a kit England also wore in like the 2010s that was a really royal blue short and had little crosses all over the... It was a Savile Row kit. It was a really weird makeup. They only wore it for a year. They didn't even wear it at a tournament. I loved it, but it didn't last very long. And people don't remember it. The same with these two kits. So if anyone doesn't remember these kits, the white one was typical 90s at the time. We spoke about in the intro as well. Big white, uh, big, big collar, big sleeves. But the collar was big, proper navy England, red trim. And then in the centre of the collar, had a little England badge just there, which was just beautiful and very clean. Umbro Pro Training range. And then the away kit, I'm never a big fan of red away kits, but this was a kind of different red. This was kind of more of a deep red wine red. Mm. Again, in big England badge, big blue collar, the England, it was kind of almost like banners and flags were embossed in the fabric on it. It's, if you don't remember, it's the goal that Graham Lasso scores, that worldie in, against um, Brazil in the Umbro Cup in 1995. So it stretches into uh, Terry Venables' reign, that kit. But... Those two kits, I think, have never really been remade. They're never really talked about, but they are two stunning kits. I actually think I prefer them to the, I always call it the darts kit of 1998 because it looks like a darts edge with the two dits down the side. Um, so they are my underrated. I had to go kits. So I know, Ed, you're not the biggest kit thing, so I'm going to throw this to Sash. Where do you rate those England kits in, in terms of, of the 1990s? 
Yeah, well, as you were talking, I was smiling because I, I, I can picture that kit so well. It's a great shout. Yeah, I remember that. Um, that uh, I've never bought an England kit. I've never sort of wanted to buy one. But if I was going to ever buy one in my lifetime, it would be that Graham Taylor kit. Yeah, the thing I picture the most, and you, and you described it uh, perfectly there, it's that little England badge mm. in, the, in the collar. It's so unique. I've never, ever seen that on any ever, top for any no. team, uh, club team or international team ever before, where you've got a little badge on the collar and obviously they had the main badge and it was just mm. like a tiny it was like a mini me yeah. version of that in the collar and it shouldn't have worked people should, i think if it happened now there'd be people be sort of mocking it on, on on twitter and stuff but it did work it was just a lovely little touch as you say it was literally a, a little touch and it and it just worked really well as you say that, that very 90s thing of having the big collar yeah just very clean sort of thick sort of luxurious material it, it, i think my cousin had it and i remember sort of touching it was it was that real there's a lot of kits at that time that felt quite heavy in the 90s which you all thought they're probably quite uncomfortable yeah. to wear but there's something quite luxurious about them yeah great kit and i think exactly what you say it's that thing that because england were rubbish at the time and it wasn't seen uh, as linked and linked to that that it wasn't seen at an international tournament because they would have worn that usa 94 wouldn't they i guess yeah um it's been forgotten from history, but it's definitely a better top than like the Euro 96 shirt, which I think is pretty plain. I, I like, like you, I don't really like the 98 one particularly. I don't think it's like, I think one I really hate was the Euro 2000 one, which had that sort oh, yeah, of white, yeah, weird big sort of round collar and it's got yeah. some weird bits in it that are like yeah. lying down, shiny yeah. trim thing yeah, in the middle of horrible. it. It was horrible. Yeah. yeah. So I think, yeah, the 1999 is obviously a classic one, but again, maybe we think it's classic because England got to a semi-final of it, uh, to the semi-final of the World Cup wearing it. But I agree. Yeah. I think that 93 to 95 one, your spot and it's a lovely top and it's been forgotten from history because England were crap when they were when they were wearing it. I think I was I think that's what I was gonna say actually. I think <laughs> the kits were better that kits were much better than the football. Um that England kit I do I do remember I do like it. I do like I do like the uh if I was to buy one kit like Sash was saying then I would I would definitely go for that. I think the red that red wine sort of kit that you described, mm. I remember that really well. I think the best player to wear that was probably Ronaldo as he walked off the it's pitch true. at the Umbro yeah. Cup. Um but or yeah Kevin that, Richardson. Kevin Richardson possibly, wore that kit in a Well random, it's funny yeah. it's funny you should mention Kevin Richardson because he was nearly my underrated no, from the decade is. because Kevin Richardson obviously in the eighties won two league titles. Yeah. Uh and then he nearly won a third one at Aston Villa. So he could have been that sort of unique player to have won three at three different clubs. So I nearly mentioned uh, Kevin Richardson. But yeah, I think Barry Venison wore that red wine kit as well yeah, for England. Did, yeah. so, uh, Possibly John days, Scales as well. Yeah, in the days where uh, everyone seemed to get a cap for England, yeah. which is yeah. Uh, yeah, happy memories. Go on then, finish us off. What is your underrated thing of the 90s? Okay, deep breath. Here we go. Uh, my underrated thing from the 90s is that the 1994-1995 season is the greatest season in living mm. Premier League memory. Um, it is absolutely bonkers from the start to the finish, pretty much over a 12-month period. There's a lot to take in here, so please bear with me. So post-USA 94, we're all still very euphoria after that, which was such a great tournament. Jürgen Klinsmann signs for Tottenham. I'm sorry, what? Somebody leaves a uh, European Cup semi-final team and joins mid-table Tottenham. Mid-table Tottenham, by the way, who have also just been docked 12 points uh, for financial mismanagement, if I remember rightly. Uh, and then that's changed down to six points, but they're banned from the FA Cup. Then they're not banned from the FA Cup. That's just one very, very small thing in this EastEnders 
soap opera, um, which is this season. Uh, after 93-94, we actually had a title race because Man United absolutely you know, ruined the league the year before. They absolutely won it at Canter. We had a title race that went down to the last day of the season, as Sachin would know being a Liverpool fan, that it came to a point where Liverpool fans were actually cheering on another team and then sort of cheered Jamie Redknapp's goal at the end, but didn't cheer it because it thought it handed the title to United. Ludo McCloskey had the game of his life at Upton Park, keeping out... Andy Cole. Andy Cole, of course, who left uh, Newcastle to join Man United halfway through the season. Keegan on the steps, yeah. That's a bit like, um, I don't know, Harry Kane just sort of upping sticks from Man City uh, for Tottenham and joining Man City halfway through the season in today's comparison um, for no apparent reason, really, other than try to win some more trophies. Um, Alan Shearer was in his prime. Uh, whispers it quietly Matt Letizia was in his prime <laughs> uh, there were four teams relegated that year just due to the living up um, scenario that was yeah. bringing it down to 20 so Crystal Palace were very very unlucky there uh, Nottingham Forest came up they were amazing Stan Collymore was amazing they finished third the Cup Winners Cup final which we've already sort of talked about mm. with Real Zaragoza Naeem struck the ball from the halfway line. It hit the moon and landed in the net at the Parc de Prince. Everton won the FA Cup after beating Spurs 4-1 at Ellen Road in a semi-final, which was played on a neutral ground, kids. Yes, I know. And also, um, there was so much scandal. Bruce Grubbler, Hans Sagers, John Fashney. Paul Merson, say Merson, uh, Paul yeah. Merson came out and said that he had addiction issues and was very, very brave. I always think he was very, very brave for doing that. Chris Armstrong became the first player to be banned for misuse of uh, illegal substances, uh, apparently. Uh, there was the riots in Dublin. Uh, Andy Cole that I've already alluded to. Eric Cantona decided to absolutely jump in the crowd and tell a Crystal Palace fan what he thought of him. And Vinny Samways was worth two million pounds. He went from top. <laughs> the biggest scab of all. Yeah. He went from <laughs> to Spain. He, yeah. And then he ended up in Spain. So he went from Tottenham's Mike Walker signed Vinny Samways for two million pounds. So out of all that, I'm going to stop now. And you come up with a better argument for a season than that. Well, it's hard to, Ed, to be honest. And when you were talking, I was I was checking them off in my head before you'd even say it because I was going, that happened that season, actually. Oh, that happened that season, actually. And I think when people talk about Premier League season, and I'm not sure if this is something that, that you speak about, The Guardian and um, Sash, and it's, it's known, but like the 2011-2012 season, the season Man City won the league, that's always seen as one of the, the best seasons, not just for the, you know, the Aguero, but overall, a lot happened that season. But yeah, I would... So I would stay up this season would stack up definitely against it and you're missing and I'm going to throw this to Shash as well the mm-hmm. important part Rob Jones was in the team of the season as well I mean what better season than to have Liverpool's Rob Jones in, in the team of the season I know Sash loves but is there a better season Sash? So well that is that is a fantastic uh, case put forward by Ed yeah. there yeah I always think uh, instinctively that the 95-96 season is the best season in Premier League history that's the Keegan rant yeah 
Um, it's the 4-3, yeah. It's the 4-3, yeah, between Liverpool and Newcastle. It's Newcastle blowing the lead. It's King Kladze scoring that goal against yeah. uh, for Man City against Southampton. It's a load of, uh, you love this, Ash, load of great kits, I think, yes, that season. Is, Liverpool, yeah. Liverpool had the fat white collar. and Apart from that one, yeah. Apart from that one. Yeah. <laughs> Various other ones as well. Newcastle, obviously, the classic brown yeah. L kit as well was that season. But no, I think Ed's put a, a brilliant case across there for 94, 95. But yeah, once you lay it all out, you realise, God, so much happened that year. Of course, the title race is the is the thing that stands out. But yeah, all the scandals, obviously Cantona and, and all the various other things. Um, and it's really, fu- you know, you mentioned Forrest there. I was going to just right, right at the end drop in another underrated thing. And I think that's Nottingham Forest's campaign from that yeah. season. There's a lot of talk in modern days about you know great seasons by newly promoted clubs. I think Leeds have had it in, you know, a couple of years ago. Brentford this year for finishing 13th. As Ed said then, Forrest came up that season and finished third in the Premier League. I've actually got the, if you just bear with me, I've got the league table here in front of me. So they finished third on 77 points. They won 22 games, only lost nine, which was less than Liverpool who finished fourth. Um, They were actually, they were undefeated in all competitions up until late October. They had an absolutely storming start season. Um, They beat Man United, uh, sorry, they drew with United in their first home game of the season, uh, one all draw. Uh, at the City ground, which was, it was a Monday night game. I remember watching it. Stan yeah, Collymore that, yeah. scored a great goal. And it was just a great team. Collymore was absolutely unbelievable that season. Had obviously Brian Roy and Lars Bohinen. And it's just a great team. And so I think their their, their individual campaign was is, is yeah. underrated and underappreciated. But no, Ed's put a fantastic case across there. Yeah, may, maybe 94, 95 is the best Premier League season of all time. I always thought it was 95, 96, but I, I think my mind may be changed. Yeah, Ed, I think you've, uh, you may have won that. We'll put again we'll put those. <laughs> just because I've got opinions. it, it's just because I've got it all written down here. And actually, for the sake of for the sake of this podcast, the best thing that happened in ninety four and ninety five was that uh, QPR finished eighth, Go on. two points behind Tottenham. Yeah. So had they won one more game, uh, it would have been we'd have been top London club twice and that's yeah. all we would have ever heard. So yeah. uh, perhaps well, it takes, that's a good it takes thing. it away from the first one. Though. You don't want to be yeah. greedy. We're happy with our <laughs> one, little acknowledgement from the 1990s. Yeah, we were, we, we, that was the Les Ferdinand season as well. That was when he was pretty unplayable before he went to Newcastle yeah. the following year. So it was kind of, we had that kind of, and he went and then the money wasn't well spent, but that was a great keeper our team as well. But no, great point. Great season. Yeah. That was, I think the only thing it possibly lacked was a proper relegation it was good. Yeah, it, it wasn't a Everton. It wasn't an it, Oldham. Yeah, I think if Sachin still got the league in front of him there, I think there was a little bit of a chance that Crystal Palace yeah. could have jumped above Aston Villa. Um, I yeah. think from memory, but three points. But yeah, other right. than that, yeah, Leicester, Ipswich, and I think it was Norwich possibly yeah. were all pretty useless to be perfectly honest yeah. but it was harsh from Palace yeah Sky didn't know what to do for their Monday night football the following season because Ipswich and Norwich both went down so they were like exactly. how can we not show Ipswich Norwich on a Monday night because that's what yeah. we do on Sky yeah. um yeah. before we go gents and we maybe want to drop a couple of us I've got a few from social media and we could be here we could do a podcast just on some of the sort of headline opinions from the listeners thank you everyone who's got in touch um overrated underrated uh, both to me and to, to Ed on, on their Twitter feeds um someone's put the England 1990 team as overrated that is overrated i know that is jimmy jimmy jams he says overrated england 1990 underrated uh, giuseppe signori which is probably that overrated from stig ucd says eric Cantona went missing on big european nights 
underrated the Rangers team that got close to the Champions League final in the early 90s. That's a good shout. The Rangers team that beat Leeds in the, yeah. Yeah, the first season of the Champions League. Yeah, just, just to say Rangers, you had to play about three. You could, you could get to the final in about two and a half games. Yeah. In that group. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there, was, there was like eight teams in the yeah. Champions League. So they did get, yeah, technically they got very close to the final. But in sort of modern money, they didn't sort of get to the last 16 or I don't know what the equivalent is, but they played very few games. So I'm, true, I'm not yeah. sure I'm having that, to be honest. Yeah, Stevie Windows 79 is not going to please any of us by saying overrated Gaza. Uh, underrated Norwich under Mike Walker. I think that's pretty much. I think they were underrated, but I think everyone knows they're almost like. I don't think they're underrated at all. I think everyone's yeah talks about yeah. well. everyone can remember Munich. yeah being by Munich. I think yeah. everything was a remarkable cheat. Uh, I'm not having Gaza either. Absolutely. No, not. I'm not even getting into that discussion. <laughs> I'm even even going to start that one. Uh, a few more underrated, each having res- recognizable nets. One for Matthew Chris there. Players lifting trophies with without fireworks and music. Sweepers. Most overrated people, people pretending Keegan's rant had any bearing on Man United beating Middlesbrough. Possibly a good point in that one. A few more. Let's have a look. There's one. I've got to find it. Where are you that I have to lambast? I'm going to go for it. 80s, 90s football says underrated 90s commentators, Barry Davis, John Motson, Brian Moore, all legends that never be replaced. That's a good point. Barry Davis was one that went through mine. But again, I think more, especially in this modern times, I think people appreciate Barry Davis and just, um, how good he, uh, he set. Someone's put Darren Peacock's ponytail, which made me laugh. Um, where's the one that I was at? Check it was. Also, Football Shirt Creations has put pogs on or Merlin Magic caps, which that made me smile lots and lots. Uh, Premiership Years, which used to be Premiership Polls, says underrated the mid-90s Sky Sports graphic with all the club flags lined up. And the here we go, here we go, this is it. Overrated, and I'll stop quickly on this one. Ryan Giggs's FA Cup goal against Arsenal. I tend to agree if we're talking goals. How do you fare about Ryan Giggs running at a very old Arsenal defence in the last few moments of extra time? One thing I'd say about it, I'm trying to, I mean, obviously I've probably seen it a million times. I, if, if I remember right, nobody actually made a tackle. I think yeah. it was Lee Dixon and Martin Keogh. Maybe they all backed off and they allowed him to keep running. Um, I think the thing that really stands out, obviously the occasion was massive, the importance of the goal. I think I think the finish was pretty incredible. Again, I'm trying to visualise it. It was sort of ultimately net, a, it, yeah. Yeah, quite a tight angle. Didn't have a lot to aim for, unlike Dennis Burkamp. And <laughs> got it in a gap between sort of Seaman and the near post, David Seaman and the near post. So uh, maybe overrated. I'll tell you one guy I think is a little bit overrated from that era. Uh, I hope this doesn't turn into a big argument because obviously we probably haven't got the time for it. But Roberto Baggio's goal for Italy against Czechoslovakia. Right, I'm leaving. <laughs> At the 1990 World Cup. If you watch that goal again, it's like it's an iconic, lovely dribble. But no, but Ed's just disappeared. Oh my God, Ed's absolutely fuming. That's his favorite. That's one of his favorite goals of all really? time. Really? Well, no, nobody makes Ed has a tackle. Left the building. Nobody makes a tackle. He just kind of runs through sort of ghosts, basically. I don't think anyone gets any. Is is near him? Tries to get near him. I love the goal. Don't you? Right? I love you know. You know I love Italian anti um, Ash, but. Um, I think that's. Bit, I, oh, I didn't think that turned into uh, uh, into a point yeah. of contention, but I think that's it's sort of similar to gigs. I, I'm I think, in the middle. I'm in the middle. Yeah. I, I think it's a great goal. I don't think he's not one of my favourite goals of the. the yeah. But I know Ed particularly, the big Baggio yeah. fan, so he particularly likes. Jeff, oh, I love Baggio. Don't get me wrong, he's yeah. fantastic. I think a goal but, yeah. I think's underrated and doesn't get talked about enough in that decade is Daly and Atkinson's umbrella goal. Oh, brilliant goal! I, think, I totally agree. What I a goal! We all sit here and yeah. go, yeah, but I don't think when they talk about great goals, yeah, because yeah. I think that was the first season of the Premier League that he won yeah. goal of the season. It often gets forgotten, and that is a proper dribble. And then I am an absolute sucker for a lobbed, chipped, scoop yeah. type finish. Like you, you've got me. It's like a Jerry Maguire. You had me at hello. It's yeah. if you chip a goal in. I am there. I tried it at five side last night. Just say. On that, Ash, and that's what make going back to Burkham again. I don't want to keep hammering that point, but 
it's because I think that goal doesn't get the love it gets because it was just a kind of regulation Premier League game. Yeah. Aston Villa and Wimbledon, you know, at a point which didn't really matter for either team. I think oh, that's right. Um, Villa, Wimbledon fans might tell me I'm wrong. It wasn't on telly. I think it was a 3 p.m. Saturday game. I so think we it was worked, a, yeah. We didn't have that shared experience. We didn't watch it live. And yeah, it was Aston Villa. With all due respect to them, it wasn't Holland against Argentina in a in a World Cup. So I think that's what makes the point. I, mean, I think that's a brilliant goal. I think that's one of the best goals of the decade, genuinely. Mm. Um, and obviously, the, the umbrella around, celebration oh, is, is phenomenal as well. It's a case of Rod Wallace as well against Lee. Yeah, I think it's another Leeds. one. Got absolutely them. another one. That is an incredible goal, the Rod that's... Wallace goal. Absolutely. He goes off the pitch. Yeah. Like, comes back <laughs> yeah. on again. Amazing goal. Yeah. It's almost as good as Roy Wegley at Ellen Road in 1990. <laughs> almost. Almost. Right. I'm going to finish on. I'm going to tell him off. Matthew Rainwright at uh, Matthew Rainwright 4. Overrated. The Alive and Kicking Sky advert. You don't, oh. you don't tweet a live and kick it and say that advert's overrated. How dare he? How, How dare, dare he? Because it's not, firstly. It's not. And it's, it's the essence of this of the book I wrote. It's the essence <laughs> of the podcast. Yeah. You leave you leave Matthew alone because Matthew Matthew always contributes to the football tavern and oh. I need all the people I can get. So <laughs> Matthew, Stick you leave together Matthew now, alone. You? Stick it yeah, together. You, yeah, you leave, you, you leave him alone. He's all right. Right. He says underrated Tony Abreu's goal for Liverpool as well, which I think it's pretty much rated as it should be. It's a fanta- another fantastic goal, but I don't know if it's underrated at all yeah. I think that, uh, Fent, I've got one here in front of me Fence says well, the Sampdoria the Sampdoria team of the 1990s was yes. underrated that was a good side in the early 90s and also defenders that could uh, or defenders that could play up front you know yeah. your Paul Warhurst your Dion Dublins and or Dion Dublins the other but you know, them, them, yeah. Yeah, them, type, them type of players you don't get that in the modern era anymore do you you don't know yeah, that's gonna, a good shout yeah. I'm going to finish on this final one Tom Loft 1991 says underrated tackling goal nets Less games on TV, the old Wembley, playoffs always felt better, Villa Park and Old Trafford semi-finals. I think that's fine. But he's, his little bomb that he's signing off with is overrated, Paul Scholes. Mm. You know, I've heard a few people say I that. Know, I'm yeah. not going to get into that at no, all. I, mean, you know, I'm, I refuse to get anywhere near that, but I have heard <laughs> others think that Paul Scholes is a bit overrated. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's another debate for another day. Um, Sash, always a pleasure, mate. Um, I think we've chewed the fat a lot there on 90s football as we always do if people want to chew more fat with you on 90s football and neighbours before it ends yes. uh, where can they find you on, on Twitter yeah just the usual Twitter handle at Sachin Akrani um, uh, the thing I'm mainly talking about at the moment obviously there's no football at the moment so I'm not talking a lot of football I'm talking a lot of Love Island on Twitter I know, I my <laughs> I know. become I absolutely obsessed with it um, it's an incredible it's, 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 it's crack cocaine it's my crack cocaine <laughs> where I know it's doing me damage but I, I'm addicted to it I can't stop consuming it it's phenomenal stuff so if you find me on Twitter I'll be talking a lot about Love Island but also yeah Neighbours is coming to an end in a few weeks so I'll probably be tweeting about that as well I want to see the Scott and Charlene scene I mean everyone's going to be tuning in yeah, for that surely yeah. I, think, I think Kylie Minogue was tweeting pictures of her and Jason Donovan yeah. on set uh, yesterday maybe that's what I saw I yeah so that's, yeah, a, that's, so a big, that's, that's coming a big soon idea. yeah How's uh, Gemma, what's her name, Gemma Rowan doing on Love Island? Is she still in it? She's still in it. Uh, she's part of a really weird relationship. She's with a lad called Luca, who's really, he, say, he seems sound, he's quite a f- funny lad, but he's w- way more into her than she's into him. And so that's going to end in tears. But the weirdest thing about Gemma Rowan is she has got Michael Owen's exact voice. It's Michael no. Owen's one-tone, yeah. monotone voice coming out of her mouth and it's freaking the crap out of me on a nightly basis. Oh, weird. I'll, I'll, I'll be honest, I watch it as well. And, oh, uh, Yeah, and... Um, I think that she was speaking last night, and like if you close your eyes, it's honestly, like, it's yeah. like it's really freaky. Yeah, off, yeah. yeah. There's a guy in there called yeah. uh, talking about. Well, I'm, I'm tenuous link to Italian ninety. There's an Italian guy in there called Davide who I should hate because he's ridiculously good looking and very cocky with it. 
but I think maybe I think most Love Island uh, viewers agree with this. Uh, he's just a bit. I love him. I take a bullet for him. He's such a lad. I love him. I absolutely adore Davide. Um, so to, to tie this bow nicely on the episode, Love Island underrated clearly. Und- underrated. Get into Love Island. It's great. It's great. <laughs> telly. It's awful, but it's great. I did a couple of years ago. I just this one hasn't actually got me yet. So yeah. maybe I'll tune in just to hear Michael Owen in a wig. Yeah, yeah, um, do that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Ed, if they want to drink in your tavern, where do they go on Twitter? Uh, at Tavern Football and not at Football Tavern, like I said the other week. So, uh, yeah, I didn't so even notice. Tavern, yeah, I get it wrong all the time, to be honest. It's bad admin, that is. It's bad admin. Absolutely. You can follow the show at AK90s as well on Twitter. So hit us up again, more underrated and overrated things from the 1990s. We'll read out some more maybe on the uh, the next episode. Uh, but until then, this has been a live and kicking. Keep it 90s. <laughs>